what the Buddha saw so clearly and what we can see for ourselves is that the underlying sources of suffering and freedom are forces or energies in our own minds. It's not something outside of ourselves. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there injustice? Why is there hunger? Why is there exploitation? The causes are not only out there, they're not outside. The same forces which cause these kinds of suffering in the world exist within our own minds as well. I know you remember the old comic strip Pogo. But there was one classic pogo strip where the caption reads, I have met the enemy and it is us. (laughs) And I think there's some profound Dharma truth in old pogo. (laughs) We have to see that the causes, the sources of suffering and freedom are within us. They're not outside of us. And this insight is the foundation of the entire spiritual path. Tonight I would like to continue in the hindrance series, which Sharon began the other night when she was talking about grasping or desire. I'd like to speak about some other of the forces in the mind which obscure wisdom which keep us from seeing the true nature of things. The first of these is aversion. How do we experience aversion? There are many different forms it takes in our experience. It's feelings of anger, of fear, of sorrow, of irritation, of hatred, of annoyance, of condemning, of judgment. It's all of those mind states which have their root in that feeling of not liking, not wanting, condemning, pushing away in one form or another. And just as an untrained mind becomes entranced, or fascinated by pleasant experience. We get seduced into attachment, into desire, into wanting. In the same way, an untrained mind gets seduced by unpleasant experience. Whenever we're in the situation either of getting something that we don't want, or not getting what we do want, So it gives rise to one of these forms of dislike, of aversion. We can observe this very easily, and you probably by now have quite a bit of experience with this, in our relationship to physical pain. Because for the most part, our minds have been very conditioned not to like it. It's unpleasant. And we don't like what is unpleasant. So our habits, our strategies for dealing with physical pain, until we begin to work with it in a meditative way, really is the expression of aversion in the mind. When pain comes, can you notice times when the mind and body contract from it. You know, where there's a pulling back, a fear. Or frustration. It's another kind of aversion. Or discouragement. This is often revealed in the tone of the note that the mind might be making with pain. You know, when you're using the note to somehow get rid of the experience. 
And so pay attention to the tone of the note because it can reveal something that perhaps has gone unnoticed. But there are more subtle levels of aversion with respect to pain. It's not only that kind of obvious hating it (laughs) and wanting to get rid of it. A more subtle form, which I worked with for a long time in my practice, even when we're more or less open to it and feeling it and relaxing into it, are we opening to it with an agenda that it should go away? You know, it's that in order to mind or project mentality. One of the ways we do this is when we begin to interpret different sensations in the body as being blocks. You know, everything is going along smoothly, and then we feel this block. (laughs) That's a concept, that's an interpretation which has built into it an agenda that somehow that block should be opened. I remember going once in in Burma to Upandita in an interview, and I started reporting about my blocks. (laughs) He really jumped on me. And it was... It was really helpful because I hadn't been aware of how my concept about it was actually the expression of aversion, of not liking. Because if we see it in that way, then we think we have to do something about it rather than simply be with the experience as it's presenting itself. Every experience is equally empty, equally insubstantial, Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. That's fine, that's okay. In another interview with Sayadaw, where I was also describing basically my body feeling quite light and a lot of energy in my practice, but I was describing some aversion I had to a particular area of pain or tension as soon as I reported the aversion, he went on this long list of other associated defilements. Oh, you have aversion to that. That means you also have desire for something better and you have no moral shame and moral dread. And <laughs> <laughs> the list was so long, I, I started to laugh. Because <laughs> I hadn't realized <laughs> quite how bad it all was. <laughs> Okay, so we can really see, we can begin to understand and to investigate the nature, all the ways aversion is working in our minds when pain comes up. So take that as an opportunity to learn, to see, rather than simply getting lost or identified in the aversion. It can be be a time that really reveals the workings of the mind. We also see aversion at work in its different forms, with different emotions. There are certain emotions that we find unacceptable because they're unpleasant. Certain emotions that we are closed off to. And for different ones of us, it may be different feelings. There may be the feeling of sadness or sorrow or rage or unworthiness or shame or embarrassment or whatever. Boredom. Now, how much of our lives are constructed around strategies to keep us from feeling certain things? Our whole culture is built on a strategy to avoid being bored. It's much simpler just to feel the feeling. (laughs) The feeling comes and goes, it's okay. So we feel bored, or we feel embarrassed, or we feel shame, or we feel unworthiness, if we know how to be with it in a mindful, open, non-identified way. These emotions are not a problem. We We neither have to feel fear of them nor aversion towards them. Friend just recently told me a story which epitomizes 
this sense or this way of avoiding certain feelings. He's telling me the story about his father and his grandfather. And it was his time just at the outbreak of the Second World War. His father and grandfather were driving on Pearl Harbor Day. And so they heard the news on the radio of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. And they heard it, and the first thing that his grandfather told his father was, don't tell your mother. (laughs) (laughs) That was a hard one to keep a secret. You know, and in some way we can laugh at that, but we really do the same thing. It was, this is maybe not quite as extreme, but trying to protect not only another person, but ourselves from simply being with what is happening. You know, our own Pearl Harbor days, when storms come up, can we open, can we be with it? Notice in the mind when there's aversion to feeling certain emotions and how that contracts us, how it pulls us back. We can feel aversion (laughs) There's so many ways. We can feel aversion about past situations. You know, we're sitting here and maybe thoughts come or images come of situations or people that have, uh, we've experienced in the past. And when we think about them, we relive the situation, very often the mind starts getting angry or filled with aversion or fear or sorrow or sadness or any one of the forms of not liking, of condemning. One very freeing insight, which will be tremendously helpful if you can call it to mind, bring it to mind. The thought of a person is not the person. The thought of a situation is not the situation. It is simply a thought. But when we're not aware that it's a thought, we get pulled into the story of it, pulled into the drama of it, and we start reacting emotionally as if it really is the person there, or it really is the situation there. There's a story of this old monk who was living in a cave, and he was, he was also an artist. And he, was, he would draw the paintings on the sides of the cave, And he spent a long time drawing this painting uh, of a tiger. And he did it so realistically that when he was finished, it said he looked at it and became frightened. That's what we do with our minds. We paint these pictures. We paint these stories. We think of these various things. We look at them and then get frightened or get angry or get whatever. And we forget that it's just a painting in our minds. It's just a thought in our minds. Not only do we do this about past situations that might actually have happened back then, we can think about things that haven't even happened. You know, just imagine things happening. Create those kind of future thoughts and get angry about those. So we want to see, we want to really understand what our minds are doing. The suffering in our lives and in the world has its source in our own minds. It's not outside of ourselves. But we have to see, we have to understand. It's through understanding 
that freedom comes. We can see, we can understand how aversion is working in relationship to pain, in relationship to certain emotions, in relationship to the stories that we're creating in our minds. We can also notice many of the forms of of aversion with regard to situations that happen on the retreat. And by now you've probably experienced at least a few of them. It hasn't happened yet probably because the weather has been quite nice. But a recurring phenomenon during the three-month course are the window wars. (laughs) Some people like the windows open for the fresh air. Some people like them closed because they're getting cold. In Burma, it wasn't the window wars, there were the fan wars. It was so hot. And in the meditation hall, and this was a meditation hall for Westerners. Some people liked the fan on, some people liked it off. There were a couple of monks, Westerners who had become monks, who actually came to blows. This is monks in a monastery, (laughs) practicing love, compassion, awareness. What's happening? It's just that force of aversion in the mind, you know, of not liking. This is what's happening in the world. It's this force being acted out in so many disastrous ways. Even if it doesn't come to the fan wars or the window wars, there's another phenomenon that happens on retreat called the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, with this, it's sort of the corollary to the Vipassana romance. There's some person here that for whatever reason you just can't stand. (laughs) You know, you don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they sit, you don't like what they're wearing. And the mind can build up this vendetta about a person you might not even know. Aversion, Aversion happens as we've talked about, you know, in a, in a frequent way, with the judging mind, just whether it's judging ourselves or judging others, really look at the core of a judgment. I think you'll find that at the center of it is some kind of aversion. I had an experience here this last June during... Uh, the retreat with Sayada. You know, one of the uh, traditions at IMS is that when there are ordained people, monks or nuns, that they go through the food line first. And everybody kind of waits, and it's really a sign of respect. So during that course, there were some Western nuns who were sitting. And I always managed to be quite near the front of the line. <laughs> it just happened that way, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm waiting, you know, quite patiently as the nuns are going through the line. And there was this one nun who was just loading up with food. Yeah, in fact, she had two plates. And so I started having all of these thoughts in my mind. That's not very nun-like. <laughs> you know, and not only that, because she was taking so much food, she was holding everybody up. You know, and there's all these yogis waiting to go through the lunch line, and she's heaping you know, one on top of another. And so my mind is just on this little riff you know, of judgment and aversion. And, and then she finally finishes... <laughs> You know, and she gets to the line, and we all start going. And then I see that she's going over and carrying one plate to a blind person who was on the retreat. So then you can imagine what went on in my mind. (laughs) 
but I, <laughs> the situation really, though, was I appreciated the fruit of all my years of practice because it could have been a setup for days <laughs> of self-judgment and, you know, how could I be doing this? And, and really, the fruit of all the years of practice was I just saw my mind doing this and really started smiling. We can smile at it. You know, if we have enough awareness, enough spaciousness, the mind is going to do this. These things are going to come. If we can simply settle back and notice it, not, oh yeah, look <laughs> at that one, it really uh, enables us to smile at ourselves. You know? And that gives a lot of a sense of inner ease, inner spaciousness. We see aversion working with respect to pain. We see it working with respect to different emotions. We see it working with all of the creations, the the stories we paint in our minds, painting them and then getting frightened or angry. You can notice aversion at work in all of the little interactions. Just a hundred people living together. There'll be lots of opportunity. to watch that impulse, that force in the mind. We need to see it. And to see it without judgment, just so that we understand, yes, this is how dislike works. This is how aversion works. This is how fear works. We can notice aversion about our own practice. You know, when things get difficult, when we feel like we're in some kind of struggle, when we're kind of working hard and nothing much seems to be happening, then we begin to feel dissatisfied or angry or discouraged. All of those feelings are a kind of aversion about what's happening. We don't like it. We want it to be different. Something which can be very helpful to notice in this regard is how often expectation comes disguised as effort. We think we're making right effort. We're putting out a good effort in the practice. But it may not be right effort at all. Or it may be effort mixed in with a kind of expectation a wanting. If expectation is present, it is a setup for a chain of events that leads to discouragement. It leads to disappointment. So to notice that right at the beginning, to really watch when the mind is wanting something to happen, is expecting something to happen, if we can catch it right in that moment, then we will free the mind in that, in that situation from the subsequent aversion which will follow. We also often get angry in inappropriate situations. A few, about a week or so ago, you know, I mentioned that situation on the plane of the person getting so frustrated and just venting the anger. It was in a very impersonal situation. Yeah. Because he couldn't contain, he couldn't hold the feeling. There was so much aversion to the feeling of frustration or powerlessness invented in that way. But it can also happen again right here on retreat. I had this situation very strongly the first retreat I sat with Sayadaw, going in for interviews. And he's a very powerful person and a demanding teacher. And so I would go in for interviews, and what my mind did with most of the things he said, it just interpreted every question as a test. 
And he would ask me something. <laughs> my initial reaction, he's testing me. And then I'd go into this panic, you know, about, am I going to get it right? Am I going to get it wrong? And then whenever he would have a comment about my practice, I would take it as a judgment. You know, he's judging how I'm doing. All of that was my own projection. He wasn't testing and he wasn't judging. He was asking questions to find out what was going on. He was giving advice to help me. <laughs> and it's so simple so often. But the way we interpret things, the spin that we put on things, very often locks us into fear, dislike, self-judgment, aversion. Pay attention when we're in situations, whether in our meditation practice, in the context of a retreat, in situations in the world. Pay attention when things are difficult, when things are unpleasant. Because that's the ground. That's the, the arena in which aversion can often arise unless we're paying attention. One very useful perspective or characteristic of aversion arising in the mind, which we can notice and learn from, is to see how when we become identified with this spectrum of reaction to unpleasant situations, Right. Dislike, annoyance, irritation, discouragement, fear, sorrow, hatred, anger. There's this whole spectrum of reaction to unpleasant situations. Notice carefully, when we become identified with those reactions, we are contracting into a very strong sense of self, of I. We are solidifying that sense of I, that sense of separation. And that is the root cause of suffering. At those times when we're contracted into a sense of self, we don't see clearly what's going on. Our minds become very turbulent. You know, we're not steady in our awareness and we're not happy. There's no ease, there's no spaciousness. So the question, given, <laughs> given the range, the very great range of how aversion can manifest, the question for us is, how can we work with it? What are the ways of working so we can stay free in the midst of it? The essential first step when we notice any of these mind states arising, is to be with it without judging it. Because if we're busy judging the anger, or judging the sorrow, or judging the fear, or judging the discouragement, or judging the judging, all we're doing is strengthening the very aversion we're trying to understand. So the very first step is at whatever point you become aware of it, and you may be lost in it for some time, but at whatever point you become aware, see if you can settle back and be accepting. Oh yes, this is what's happening. Note these moments of ill will or aversion as soon as you notice that they're present, make a big frame around it. You know, sometimes the energy is very powerful. Sometimes it's not just a little angry thought. 
you know, or a passing judgment about someone. Sometimes there's a whole storm which is going on. So what we need to do at that time is to make a very big frame of awareness which can contain, which can hold the storm of energy. And we can do that. Awareness has that capacity. That's not enough. Once we are able to be accepting of it and to frame it, it's important to bring in some discriminating wisdom and to see that aversion in all its forms is an unwholesome mind state. That is, it is a state of suffering for ourselves and others. This understanding may run counter to New Age psychology. You know, where often the message is, or sometimes the message is, well, honor your anger. And I've been in situations where people have said that. You, know, you have anger and it should be honored. I think that this... a seed of something useful in that. <laughs> but that it's slightly off. It's not that the anger should be honored. It's not honorable. <laughs> It's the cause of suffering. What we need to honor is the fact that it has arisen. We need to honor the fact that, yes, anger has arisen in our minds. We have to see it. We have to open to it. We have to feel it. We have to be aware of it. That's what needs honoring. The truth of what's happening in the moment. But if we understand that aversion is an unwholesome mind state, that gives us the impetus or the energy not to simply be feeding it, not to be getting lost in it, not to be venting it. We honor the fact that it's there, that it's present, and even acknowledge that it may be a signal to us saying, yes, something may need attending to. So it can be a useful signal but we also have to see that if we get lost in that emotion, if we become identified with it, we are causing suffering for ourselves and for others. When we work with aversion in its different forms, and we can see it and be aware of it, it's not denying, it's not suppressing, it's not pretending, a danger on a spiritual path is a kind or can be a kind of pretense. Oh, I'm not angry. I never get angry. <laughs> no, I'm a meditator. That's not it. We need to be truthful. We need to be open to what is happening. But sometimes we can really feel the anger, we can be with it, or the different forms of aversion, be accepting of it, and still somehow it's locked in. What can be very helpful is to see if there are any associated emotions which are underneath it and feeding it. So, for example, very often what feeds anger is self-righteousness. Now, we may, we may feel right about something. And that, very, that attachment to the feeling right very often is what's fueling the emotion. If we don't see that, no matter how aware we are of the emotion of anger, it keeps on going on, it keeps on building. Because we don't see the underground spring. It's quite amazing, and I've had this experience often, in noting and noticing the self-righteousness, 
Oh, the whole thing can dissolve. Likewise with the feeling of sorrow, which is another form of aversion. It's an aversion turned inward. You know, uh, anger is aversion turned out, aggressive. The sorrow or fear, it's called re- the retreating form of aversion. It's aversion turned inwards. Often what feeds sorrow, just like self-righteousness can feed anger, often self-pity is what fuels, fuels sorrow. But again, if we don't see that, we can really be lost in it for a long time. There's one very brief teaching of the Buddha on anger, which Sharon mentioned earlier on in the retreat. But I feel that it's, it's very... Uh, as he did almost all the time, the Buddha really got it. <laughs> this is how he described the feeling of anger. And it just when I read it, that's it. Anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. You know, and I thought, that's just what it's like, you know, because we can get into that fevered climax, the energy of it, and that murderously sweet, you know, feeling about it, but often we miss its poisoned source. It's in that respect that we need to understand that it is an unwholesome mind state. It's not judging it. And it's not condemning it, which is just more aversion. It's to see it. And to learn how to be free with it. Sometimes people have the feeling that if they give up this energy of anger or or other forms of aversion, they're giving up a source of power, a source of strength for effecting change interpersonally or in the world, because it is a very powerful energy. There are other sources of strength, other sources of energy that are more powerful. And we can see it you know, in the lives of some very great people. The Dalai Lama is a wonderful example of response to tremendous injustice, response to tremendous pain inflicted, devastation. It's amazing how free of anger he is because his source of strength is compassion. And it's not ineffective. It's not a pulling back. It's not a not caring. We see it with people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King. In the face of so, so much injustice and what we could get so angry about, these are people who are moving from the energy of love. This is what we can learn about our own minds, about our own experience on the retreat, to find that place in ourselves. It's not outside. And in a very significant way, these people are no different than we are. They've just found that place. One other way of working with the force of aversion when it arises, it's like we note it, we see it, we become accepting of it, we understand its unwholesome nature so we know no longer indulging it. It gives us the energy to be free in it. One of the things that I found very helpful when the mind is on an angry tape, that very often it has to do with kind of obsessive thinking, whether it's about a particular person or about a situation, it's like the thoughts keep churning out 
and the thoughts keep making us angry. One of the things I found helpful is changing channels. It's a channel. It's just a channel of the mind. And it's happening a lot you know, in our thought process. If we can drop down to our heart level, literally, but drop our awareness down here, remembering that everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to be peaceful, even if they're doing crazy, harmful things. I don't know that you've found yet. <laughs> In each one of us, there's a clicker. There is. And once you find the clicker, you can change channels. <laughs> what do they call it when you're kind of... <laughs> surfing, channel surfing. <laughs> we can learn to channel surf. We don't have to stay on the same channel when it's an unwholesome one. It is possible to change it. So play with that. You, know, you can really... <laughs> start enjoying the infinite possibilities of the mind. Okay, that's a lot about aversion. <laughs> I'll start with the next one. I don't think I'm going to actually get through it. <laughs> The next big hindrance in the series, which comes up a lot for people, is sloth and torpor. In Pali, the word is tinamita. And sometimes, I think it's useful to begin to learn some Pali words. Uh, for me, it's been helpful because begin to, just by using them, begin to look at the states in a fresh way, you know, without maybe some of the baggage or connotation we have by using the English word a lot. Okay, what is tinamita, sloth and torpor? We feel it as sleepiness. We feel it as drowsiness. We feel it as dullness of mind. Now, the mind is very contracted. It's very sluggish. And it's as if the fire of energy is gone. It's as if our energy collapses. The example given is of congealed butter. You know, it's very hard and dense and very hard to spread. It's a mind state. When sloth and torpor is present in the mind, this tinamita, it makes us very inactive makes us lazy. There's no energy to accomplish anything, to do anything. And once sloth and torpor has taken over the mind, it like clutches. It's very hard uh, to actually free the mind from it because it grabs and holds on. And I don't, I don't know whether it's coincidental or not, but I was reading in a natural history book about the three-toed sloth. And it's just, I don't know which came first, the mind state or the animal. But the nature of the three-toed sloth is when it's hanging onto a branch, it holds on really tight. And it is so sluggish. It said, this is what was said in the book, that if you fired a gun by its ear, it wouldn't even turn its head. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a good image. <laughs> when we get lost in this mind state of sloth and torpor, it has some very important consequences, not only for our practice, but in our lives. It's not only a meditative phenomena. We really need to understand how this energy, or lack of it, affects how we're living. Because the nature of tinamita of sloth and torpor is that when we come up against difficulties, when we come up against challenges, Tina Mita never wants to go forward. It never wants to advance. Its nature is to retreat, is to pull back. 
And it's very tricky, as so many of these mind states are, because sometimes, and especially on retreat, it comes masquerading as compassion for ourselves. I better not work too hard, because I might get sick. Let's relax a little bit. Let's go take a nap. All of, or many of these times when the mind is just, you know, when we think our mind is just telling us, you know, be soft, be relaxed, be kind to yourself, be good to yourself, <laughs> you know, be compassionate to yourself. Sometimes, at least, it is really just the voice of Tina Mita, you know, which is pulling us back from energetic effort. We need to distinguish this from a genuine wisdom, which sees when we do need to pull back. If we're efforting too much, if we're forcing too much, if we're getting too tight, then it is appropriate to settle back a bit, to relax a little bit. But that's a big difference. And we need to be discriminating enough and learn enough about ourselves, be honest enough with what's going on to know when it's wisdom and when it's sloth and torpor. It reveals itself in so many ways. Besides just the feeling of sleepiness or drowsiness, it's the state of mind that hates energetic people. <laughs> and I had this experience once. A few of us were, were in Australia, sitting with Sayadaw. And I was sitting in sharing the same space with Steve Smith. And he gets into real warrior mode when he sits. He's a... So I go to sleep 11 or 12, and he'd still be up. And I'd be getting up quite early, and he'd be up already. And I was getting really annoyed at him. <laughs> and I could see my mind, you know, what does he think he's doing? <laughs> And then I would begin to feel this self-judgment. You know, okay, he's working really hard. Why should should I be giving him a hard time? But when I understood it, when I saw that this is, when I didn't personalize it, when I saw it, this is just the mind of sloth and torpor. It's the mind of Tinamita, which looks at, you know, somebody energetic and gets grumpy. It created a lot of space and it created a lot of humor. And actually, the situation then became a source of inspiration rather than a source of uh, grumbling. When our mind is contracted, you know, in Tinamita, there's not much joy in our practice or in our lives. So we need to heat up the congealed mind. We need to melt the butter a little bit. We need to create some fire at those times. I'll just run through quickly a few suggestions for how to work with sloth and torpor. One very obvious one is to note it as soon as you become aware. Really frame it and be energetic in the noting with a sense of interest. What is this state? How is it coming over me? What does it feel like? So you really understand, not simply from words that somebody else may have said, but you understand for yourself what this quality of mind is doing. How is it manifesting? How do you feel? That very sense of interest or investigation is a way of bringing energy, bringing some fire. One time I was sitting and I was just having these waves, just waves of sloth and torpor come over. And so what I would do is I would sit, I would sit up really straight and have my eyes wide open. And I could feel this wave coming down and this almost irresistible urge to close my eyes. uh, But I didn't. 
It's like I was, <laughs> so I would sit uh, and I forced my eyes open and I could feel the wave come down, down, down. And really the whole wave of, of sleepiness came down past my eyes, past my head down and out. And then I closed my eyes and felt, oh, got it. And then about a minute later, another huge wave would come. So again, I opened my eyes. You know. And I was with this for many waves of it. But it was so inspiring in a way. At a certain point, I don't remember whether it was five waves or ten waves of this intense sleepiness, after some number of them, I was wide awake. And it was just interesting to see that we don't have to believe what this mind state is telling us. Usually it's, it's that voice, oh, you're so tired, you better take a nap. But it's not always, or perhaps not often, true. It's just a passing state that we can work with, we can play with. But we need that interest. We need that sort of resoluteness. When I first started sitting, it was very early years, I was sitting with a teacher named Goenka in India. And he used to start the day, the schedule began at 4 a.m. with a two-hour group sitting. It was hard. You know, I'd get up and I could get up okay. I didn't, that was fine. And I was particularly motivated to get up quickly so I could get a space against the wall. <laughs> they, were, they were the prime spaces. So I'd get into the meditation hall early, I'd find my space against the wall, I'd start sitting. You know, after not very long, I'd lean back against the wall, and very soon after that, I was asleep. And before I knew it, the bell went, oh, that was nice. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things my mind started doing after a while was I I started thinking, this is really stupid. Why, Why do I keep on doing this? I might as well just stay in bed and get to sleep, and so when I get up rested, I'll actually be awake, instead of just coming in and sleeping all the time. But I didn't believe that voice. And I kept coming. I kept coming into the hall and falling asleep. And then one day I came into the hall and I was totally alert for the whole time. And since then, it was like that was a turning point. Those early morning sittings have never been a problem. And what I learned from that was that even when we think nothing is happening, we think we're just wasting our time, we might as well stay in bed. Just the effort to keep at it. Okay, come into the hall, fall asleep. But just the coming in and making the effort, something is happening. And at a certain point, the balance of energy changes and we're really there, we're awake, we're alert. So we need, that, we need that sense of confidence in our own practice, in our own determination, even when it's difficult. And even when we think nothing much is happening, it is happening. Okay, note the feeling when it's there. Really note it with interest to discover what its nature is. Keep the eyes open, make the effort to keep your practice going. The four reflections of things that turn the mind towards the Dharma can be very helpful in times of sluggishness because thoughts are an... uh, are an active energy in the mind. And so we can use Dharma reflections on the precious human birth, on impermanence, on karma, on the defects of samsara. Those kind of reflections can arouse energy. 
know, when we're very sleepy. You can stand up, you can do more walking. One of the things the Buddha suggested, which there's a whole uh, discourse where he was talking to Moggallana, who was one of his chief disciples, before he was enlightened. Moggallana, he became a monk, and a week later he was fully enlightened. But in that week, he had some problems. <laughs> and there's, there's actually a little dialogue it's a, where the Buddha, through his psychic power, could see Moggallana you know, being overcome by sloth and torpor. And he said, Oh, Moggallana, are you drowsy? Oh, yes, Lord, I am nodding. And the Buddha said, Listen, and I will teach you ways of overcoming it. And a lot of them have to do with the things I've mentioned about changing our attitude about it so that we're not simply giving into it. But one of the things, in addition to standing up and opening the eyes and taking more active posture, he suggested pulling one's earlobes. <laughs> I'm just passing on the words of the Buddha. <laughs> Whatever works. Whatever works. If you try all of these things and you really feel exhausted, then lie down and take some rest. One little hint about taking rest or taking a nap if you find that you need it during the day. You might want to lie down and be with your practice and just be watching until just the moment you know, where you're dropping off and then get up. Because one of the things I've noticed is that it's not really the sleep that's needed, that it's that sense of allowing the body to deeply relax. You know, and I don't know whether you notice that point when you're just going to sleep. You're lying down there and you can feel it. You can feel it in the body when everything lets go. Right then, you might get up because that might be enough. It might really be what the body is needing. Okay. As you can see, there's a lot to say about these hindrances. Keep in mind that they are all visitors in the mind. They are not intrinsic to the mind. They're not the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is awareness. Awareness is clear, it's lucid, it's empty. But these forces visit it. We need to see the visitors, we need to understand them. So that the mind can stay free in the experience. Not get trapped, not get caught, not get identified. And as we can say, this is not just about our experience on retreat. That the suffering in the world comes from these forces at work in the mind. If we can understand and free ourselves here, that is how we are really practicing for the benefit of all. I'd just like to close with something the Buddha said to the monk Soma, who was the lute player, and it was with regard to this monk that the Buddha talked about adjusting the strings of the lute so they're not too tight and not too loose. And that's the balance we need to find in our practice. He ended that little discourse to Soma by saying, the gift of truth is the highest gift, and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste, and the joy of truth is the greatest joy. That's what we are doing here together. It is really the gift of truth. We want to see and understand the nature of our experience, of what is happening, of all of these different states. The gift of truth is the highest gift, and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste, and the joy of truth is the greatest joy. That's what we can do for ourselves and for all others.
Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.